but this time the hawk realized this pigeon and they went up and up and up and then uh, pigeons have a lot of loose feathers and there was a huge puff of white feathers as the goshawk grabbed it and, uh, and then parachuted down to the ground. Hey, welcome back again, everyone, for another episode of the Falconry Toll Podcast. And this series brought to you all by the Cape Falconry Club is down to the last final couple of episodes. We're in a couple of bonus episodes with a couple guys from the UK that were in attendance. But I just want to say thank you again to the Cape Falconry Club for the invitation and helping to organize all of this. Without them, none of this would have happened. And I appreciate the invitation and the trust to help bring their stories out to the wider world and it'll always be very much appreciated and i hope i can make it back again sometime soon but also a big shout out to the falconry heritage trust for helping to sponsor the travel expenses that were involved with this trip without being able to pay for the airfare and without the help that they provided and and all that kind of stuff i wouldn't have been able to to make it over there so big thanks to them if you want to find out more information on what they do in their mission to preserve the cultural heritage of falconry around the world just said to falconryheritage.org and of course also a big shout out to bobby aga crafts for their continued support he makes great quality handmade equipment if you haven't had a chance to check it out yet i highly recommend you do so just hit him up at bobby aga goshawk on instagram or you can also find the other contact information for them on our website at falconrytold.com And our guest for this episode, Robert Kenward, has done a lot over the years to help falconers contribute to conservation. He's done a lot of volunteering with the IAF and a lot of work with the IECN to continue to help with the conservation effort. And he's done a lot of studies of predation by raptors and things like that over the years as well. It was nice getting a chance to talk to him and get to know him some at the joint IAF and IECN conference and also at the uh, Cape Falconry Club meet. And it was also interesting getting a chance to hear about some of his travel experiences with goshawks and things of that nature through Europe as well. So I'm going to go ahead and turn things over to this conversation with Robert Kenward. I hope you enjoy and stay tuned for the next episode, which will wrap our Cape Falconry Club series. So appreciate it. And here we go. So you said when we were talking the other day, you said this was like your, I don't know, second or third time being in, in this it's area. It's my second time being in South Africa. Yeah. But I've been in Namibia before. Okay. And, uh, but not for so much for falconry purposes. Um, actually, come to think of it, it's my third time in South Africa. Yeah, because I was here for a world working group on birds of prey meeting in Johannesburg in in uh, 1998. Yeah. And uh, so, yes, it's my third time. I came here and went to the Raptor Research Foundation meeting in Skakuza uh, in 2019 uh, because Adrian Nost had asked me to give me a give a paper on um, uh, the conservation role of falconry, so I did that at, the, at that meeting. And there were a number of us gathered there, including Neil Deacon and Yanis uh, Siliki and uh, and a few others. So nice. Well, 
like I said, this is, um, I don't know, it's been kind of an eye-opening experience for me so far anyway. You know, it's been, I mean, we um, have been kind of talking amongst ourselves some about, you know, all the kind of subtle differences between, you know, how falconry is, uh, you know, done in, in our respective countries and things. And, um, you know, like I said, as uh, <laughs> as it continues to just poor outside you know it gives a gives us a lot of time to kind of sit and and reflect and and socialize a little bit so you know as far as um i mean as far as this trip goes though i mean do you feel like you've been able to kind of uh, accomplish what you you set out to do on this trip or yes i'm <laughs> given the two presentations that i've given and <laughs> and uh, here's an here's an extra one so yeah uh, so that's fine um but it, it I didn't really come here so much to talk about falconry as about falconers, the role of falconers in in conservation and um, the strategy of falconry, which has got them to this point, rather than having been extinguished in 1975, which was what was at that time intended by some people who put a motion to an organization that was then called the International Council for Bird Preservation, and it's now called uh, BirdLife International. And uh, a motion was put that uh, falconry should be forbidden globally. Hmm. Um, and uh, a number of us were involved in uh, getting rid of that motion, or we could, didn't get rid of it completely. We amended it. Um, and it uh, was, on the whole, uh, not nearly as unfavorable to falconry. Uh, at the end of the day, we certainly didn't get a call for a, a general ban. And uh, since then, falconry has improved its reputation enough to become uh, an intangible cultural heritage of mankind uh, registered by UNESCO. So I think we've come quite a long way compared to many of the other organizations uh, that are involved with sustainable use activities, in particular shooting game uh, and so on. I think falconers have done perhaps a little bit better than most, despite being a small minority. Hmm. Well, I've been able to talk to some falconers like in uh in the U.S. especially, that were kind of involved in um, kind of implementing or helping to implement some of our national regulations and, you know, of course, were also involved in a lot of other things that kind of changed kind of how – you know the the I guess the face of falconry in a way. You know, there's um, you know I've I've had the the fortunate um, I don't know ability to be able to talk to you know some people also who were kind of instrumental somewhat in in the the reintroduction of you know peregrines and and things like that. But I really haven't had a chance to talk to anyone yet who's kind of been involved in trying to I don't know keep things available for you know or, or kind of keep falconry available for the community in, in a worldwide stage you know mm. as far as that goes so i mean if you don't mind kind of i mean for people that aren't really familiar with the history of all that i mean can you go kind of into how that came to be a little bit and what um you know kind of was done um <laughs> i can only imagine just the the workings of that and all the work that went into that but 
Well, the International Association of Falconry and Conservation of Birds of Prey was founded uh, in 1968, and that brought together the major European clubs of the day. And they were therefore in a position um, when uh, falconry came under attack to do more. The situation was a bit different in, in the US, but things were going on uh, then as well. Uh, and um, there was the founding of Raptor Research Foundation, which of course was an important event. Uh, and then the falcon breeding started actually on both sides of the Atlantic uh, at more or less the same time. Though the first person to breed falcons was Rentz Waller uh, in 1942, 43 in Germany. Uh, at least the first ones we know historically recorded because there's, there is quite a few hints coming out of the older literature that birds sometimes bred in, in mews when they'd been put to molt. So, um, but the first occasion was then. But by the time 1975 came along, um, breeding had been developing well in the last five years. Um, RF held a, a, a survey of this in about 1970. Uh, in uh, um, the UK, we started a journal um, called uh, Captive Breeding of Diurnal Birds of Prey. Uh, and we translated quite a lot of material from the European sources into that. Uh, and we also had some material coming in from, uh, from across the Atlantic. Um, so that by the time we got to 1975, when the pressure had been building up during the, uh, um, pesticide era, uh, and falconers were being blamed um, for removing the last uh, raptors, because it must be said there had been some very foolish um, um, helping themselves to um, um, peregrines from Iris in places like Denmark uh, from, from the last nesting pairs, which was, uh, I think, a mistake, but did in fact put some birds into, into um, domestic use for breeding. But uh, that had brought falconry into disrepute, and that was the reason for that legislation, or for that attempt to put a, uh, uh, um, a motion together, which was put together but was not uh, adopted as such. The we had a lot of help at that time from people from across the Atlantic, um, Richard Fife, um, Tom Cade, uh, Morley Nelson. Uh, Wayne Nelson, they were all people who, who engaged with us at that time, uh, and, and helped. And we put, were able to put together, uh, a showing of the numbers of raptors that have been bred for falconry, not just in numbers, uh, but in the breadth of species. And were able to make the point that the falconers actually, rather than being the problem, were the potential solution. And that was how we managed to turn the tide at that time. The problem didn't go away, um, and various countries banned falconry, um, Denmark, uh, um, Australia, um, Sweden, um, uh, others didn't legalize it at a time when laws were being made to legalize various aspects of hunting, so it became a gray area. Um, but of course, the situation was, was different in North America. Um, and, um, 
Well, uh, you you can you'll have plenty of people to have said things about that. I'm trying to remember the uh, the name of uh, of um, of someone who I was involved with at that time in the states because I paid a number of visits over there, having been invited, uh, in fact, by Ken Carney to join the um, the Raptor Research Foundation. I got invited over to a first meeting in '78, and I got to Jim Greer. That's right. Uh, I got to know um, and um, Mark Fuller, uh, of course. Uh, at who's now at Boise. Um, so I got to know a number of Falconers in the States from from traveling over there. Clayton White, uh, Joe Murphy, sadly dead now, um, if, uh, who were in um, Salt Lake City. So I got to know a lot of Falconers. And in those days, the uh, falconry um, meetings of, of NAFA were arranged jointly with the Raptor Research Foundation meetings uh, so that they followed on and, and Falconers were very much a part of Raptor Research Foundation. Uh, not so much nowadays, although there's been some interest recently in making sure that falconers are adequately represented uh, on uh, at um, the Raptor Research Foundation. Well, and as far as, you know, kind of some of the different things that have progressed since then, you know, that you've had to deal with and, you know, kind of have been involved with, I mean, I like I said I know it's it's a it's quite a, a length of time from you know that point until now but what have been some of the other things that you've had to be a part of to kind of be involved in the advocacy for all of this I mean I know there's probably just so much but well, I served uh, on um, IF as research coordinator for. for from that time um, until uh, 2006, the um, IF and NAFA meeting at Kearney that year. Um, and many people contributed along that way. Uh, the, obviously, an important thing was NAFA joining in the first place. Uh, Roger Thacker had to persuade, had some difficulty to persuade uh, NAFA board that it would be a good thing to join IF. And the numbers of people joining IF grew considerably during that period. Um, I think we were up to, by that time, 40, 45 clubs. Uh, and now, of course, it's double that. It's, it's 90 or so. But of course, that was helped greatly uh, by the um, profile, high profile given to IEF uh, as a result of the um, intangible cultural heritage um, inscription by UNESCO. Okay. And as far as, you know, what brings you to, you know, South Africa for, for this particular trip, I mean, can you kind of go a little bit into kind of what has kind of been going on here now that's kind of uh, was responsible for this this joint conference and, and things uh, just to kind of fill people in a little bit on, um, you know, kind of what's been going on over the last few days here in uh, in South Africa? Or? Well, to put that again into an, a longer term context, Falconers were always great innovators. Um, perhaps uh, the elite innovators of conservation uh, and it was never just the breeding and release techniques, uh, but falconers were heavily involved in the development of radio telemetry, which is a technique I use throughout my uh, research career for raptors. 
Well, they've gone on innovating over the time, and this, in effect, is is the latest innovation in which Falconers are involved, which is international multilingual networking uh, for conservation uh, to try and help converge the thinking uh, of people from cultures all over the world uh, through producing material uh, translated into all their languages so that they're seeing exactly the same thing in each case. It's very important to do this because uh, in some countries there has been um, quite a, a movement recently uh, away from uh, from respect for the West and and listening to the West at all, uh, and in fact things get changed as they are passed around. Um, disinformation is a very major part of this, and uh, so it was very interesting. The first two sites that we set up, um, one of which was a raptor site on the Saker Falcon, uh, the second most used languages after English were Russian, uh, because the Russians were getting least information uh, translated across to them. Of course, some other languages. This is in Europe, um, but in other countries, there's been far less exchange of information. Now, this is not a little thing for falconry because it is an understanding of what falconry is really about, uh, which has been promoted by IEF worldwide, uh, that has resulted in um, some 90 countries being members. It's uh, a huge uh, change which has happened and has been helped Obviously, by the UNESCO inscription, but but this is a, a it's because of this and because of contacts with governments in these countries um, that falconry has uh, managed to build its reputation, um, speak about its conservation, convince people about that um, in governments and and the sorts of places groups in governments, in environment ministries, and elsewhere that that sign up to multilateral environmental agreements internationally. Nationally, and that has protected falconry and enabled it to to bloom. I mean, we we now have it legalised in in Denmark again. We we still have to wait for some other countries, uh, but um, the process now is to get it legal everywhere. Well, and you know, just kind of, if you don't mind, also talk a little bit about how being involved with all these different things has kind of impacted you know your personal falconry throughout the years i mean i can only imagine with being <laughs> with being involved in all these different things how much of a juggling act that probably was for you if all falconers have to juggle they have to <laughs> juggle their their passion and and family and job mm -hmm. uh and um some of them prioritize the falconry and the job, and that often has unfortunate circumstances for them in the end. <laughs> uh, I've prioritized um, the conservation work I've been doing and family. Uh, and so the last time I flew a hawk was uh, in uh, 95, my last goshawk uh, at that time. I hope to find time to fly a goshawk again uh, before I become um, too um, infirm to be able to do so. Uh, but um, I don't know. Uh, this is going to depend on how much we manage to uh, to um, bring on the younger successors of us older ones who who have uh, done our fair bit uh, and need others to come come on 
on and uh, and take over from us so that we can uh, particularly write some of this t down. Uh, I'm supposed to be writing a book with Adrian Lombard at the moment on falconry and beyond, um, which uh, would cover cover this side of it and cover a, a lot of the history. Uh, at the moment, there are some bits written down, odd paragraphs here and there, but uh, bringing them together is is not managing to happen. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and it's a it's a big sacrifice. I mean, I think you know, every you're right. I mean, for right or wrong, everybody kind of prioritizes things differently, and mm -hmm. you know, we. I think the majority of us try to do the right thing for the right reasons, but it's easy to get lost sometimes <laughs> in, in all of this. And, you know, I mean, even though it's, I mean, it's, that's a long time to, to give up, you know, personal endeavors. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I commend you for, you know, at least still having the, the passion to, to stay kind of involved in, in this aspect of things, even at the, at the sacrifice of your, of your own hawking. Well, I get to handle hawks every so often, but mm -hmm. uh, but not to keep one myself. And and since I'm I'm not a a true falconer, I'm a I'm an ostringer, strictly speaking. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, uh, and that's really what I want to fly. I, they're such uh, awkward beasts. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's the that's the the challenge of of goshawks. And as you you know, because we've talked about it, mm -hmm. we both share an interest in in hunting squirrels. So. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, and so. A about what year did you discover? I mean, like, how early on did you discover falconry? I mean, was it a childhood thing or? Uh, I was fascinated in the idea of falconry. I was fascinated by birds. I had an uncle who was uh, a keen ornithologist uh, and and a record keeper, the sort of ornithologist that actually collected systematic data. Uh, and uh, he encouraged me in that sort of thing. He uh, f forbore my penchant for birds uh, nesting when it was still legal to do that. Uh, and um, And I read a couple of books. Uh, one was The uh, Taming of Genghis by Ronald Stevens, of course, the first person who produced hybrids that we know about, um, and T.H. Uh, White's book, The Goshawk. Uh, and these these fascinated me, and I, uh, I set my heart on training a bird eventually. I didn't get the chance till I was 16. Um, and this was partly because uh, there weren't many falconers in those days. This was in the 60s. And um, I trained my first bird from using um, mainly two books, uh, a manual of falconry by Mike Woodford uh, and um, falconry for you, I think it was called by Humphrey App Evans. And, uh, and so I, I, uh, my first bird that I trained, I hadn't met uh, another falconer at that time. Um, I did meet not long afterwards, uh, James Robertson Justice, who was a, uh, a larger than life fellow who, who lived quite close by and, uh, and uh, ran into him in the street in, in Winchester and said, I was a falconer too. Of course, I'm sure he 
he he must have had a lot of people coming up to him and doing that. He was a quite a serious falconer and a famous film star, a bit like uh, Morley Nelson, actually, come to think of it. Uh, and um, but he was a larger than life character, and in many uh, in many films, um, the Carry On series of films, the comedies, uh, he used to feature in those. And uh, but died quite young. Uh, but he had a uh, he was a keen falconer and, and used to fly up on a, a moor in Scotland and take a lot of grouse uh, and and knew the early um, uh, people who'd come back to flying uh, grouse in the UK because, um, of course, falconry almost vanished in the UK, not completely. Uh, but most of what was going on um, maybe 100 years ago was, was more around the Salisbury Plain, partridges and so on, rather than the grouse. And there was a group of people post-war, um, Jeff Pollard, uh, Stephen Frank, uh, James Robertson Justice, who, who really got the grouse hawking going again with, with falcons. I shouldn't forget to mention Roger Upton as well, although he was younger than them. <laughs> well, and, and when I did the series a year ago for the UK and got a chance to talk to uh, a lot of falconers from, from over there, it was pretty interesting to hear more about the the history of, of falconry in the uk in particular and just kind of how you know the war especially or the wars you know, <laughs> um you know kind of impacted you know the uh the the clubs there and you know just um you know the access to to lands and then the the just the amount of falconers there were and i mean remind me again where where in the uk are you from or where, where you... i'm from dorset now in those days i was in hampshire which is the next door county so we haven't moved very far um but the there weren't uh, the the um james robertson justice like me lived near winchester and we, i remember we met on one occasion the street in winchester um, but I really didn't have uh, any falconers to guide me um, until uh, I moved to Eastbourne. My parents moved to Eastbourne, sold a family farm very sadly, uh, which was obviously it would have been nice to have been able to go hawking on a family farm, but about the same time as as uh, uh, as I got my first hawk that could actually kill things, um, I, I had a goshawk and then a male redtail. Um, the um, my father had to to sell the farm to, uh, and he wanted to to retire. I was a post-war family. He had a, a pre-war family as well, so he was getting on a bit. And uh, there, I, I met uh, several falconers. Um, Mike Dawson, who was uh, the in charge of the Hawking Club of Great Britain uh, at that time, I got to know. But the first one there I think I met was Bob Sims, um, who used to fly red tails. And in fact, my, my first um, male red tail came from him. And he was the first person who, who got me actually to catch quarry because it's quite difficult. Um, that's uh, one of the real elements of why it's an intangible cultural heritage. Um, is that um, you can learn to train hawks, you can fly hawks, fine, get them to come back to you. There's plenty of instruction in the books for that. But the little things like how to find quarry in 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 a, a place where you're likely to be able to catch it, these, these sorts of things uh, were at that stage at least. I mean, there are much better books available now. But at that stage, 
there wasn't really anything very much to tell you. If you were going to fly falcons, there was, because the, the books had been written mainly about those. But for short wings, not so much. Certainly, you couldn't get much out of T.H. White's Goshawk, for example. <laughs> um, so there wasn't too much. And uh, and to, to be able to go out with someone and, and fly a hawk at the same time as them and, and in turns and, and catch my first rabbit, that was it was that was down to Bob Sims, mm-hmm. uh, and um, Mike Dawson got me into the club world, um, Hawking Club of Great Britain. I was secretary of that for a while and and helped arrange the amalgamation with the British Falconers Club, so that there weren't two competing national clubs, which there were briefly for a while. Well, and around, um, do you remember like around how old you were or how long you had been practicing falconry when you finally kind of you know. Uh, major first kills or, ma- or major first catches and stuff? I guess it was about a, a year after I'd started flying. I had a, 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 a Brahmini kite um, which was um, uh, imported from India, which was my first bird, which we uh, bought through the equivalent of, of the internet uh, nowadays uh, pages in uh, in Cajun Avery birds. And um, it wasn't a hawk that you could, um, you could train it and it used to fly very nicely very beautiful acrobatic flights and so on and it would catch a lure and things uh, but it was not any good for catching anything and uh, uh, and so the first bird I had as I mentioned was the red tail uh, from Bob Sims and um, I was at that age at uh, that stage I must have been about 17 I had the the first kite at 16 I passed that on to someone else about having had it for about nine months, I suppose, and then went on and got the the red tail. And I must have been 17 then, probably. Uh, and then I started flying goshawks um, regularly. My first one for, from Bill Ruddock, uh, Sergeant Bill Ruddock, who introduced the goshawks um, into the north of England, and he was bringing in birds from uh, from uh, Central Europe, um, some from the Czech Republic uh, and and from countries there, and um, if they were nice, they were. I think they were mostly probably caught at pheasant pens. If they were nice, um, he did bring some ices in. My first bird I had from him was was an ice, um, and but if he had, uh, he was getting haggards in which had been caught. He was letting them go back into the wild, and that established the population in the borders between England and Scotland. Someone else was releasing the birds at the same time in the Welsh borders, which established a population there. Those were coming in from Sweden. Uh, and then I uh, was involved in bringing in birds from uh, from Finland, uh, and we released them in several other areas as well. Uh, but Bill Ruddock and, uh, and um, uh, and the um, others were actually more important people for re-establishing the gospel. We studied it in more detail, but they let the birds go in insufficient numbers to build the populations there. Well, and about how long of a gap was it before? I mean, so you pretty much started flying goshawks or, you know, exhibitors, um, you know, kind of right after those early years. Then. About 18, I started flying goshawks, yes. And just never went back after that? 
No, I flew goshawks all through my doctoral thesis. My doctoral thesis was about the impact of goshawk predation on wood pigeons, and and so I, that was based partly on arranged attacks uh, and partly on developing methods of following uh, goshawks around with radios on. Um, and in, if they were ISIS, you could bring them back in. You could uh, uh, an IS goshawk. We discovered that you could actually pick it up after ten days out. Uh, you had to crawl on your stomach, and I had a. a uh, a, a hook uh, on uh, an extendable car antenna with which I could hook the Almarai Jesses when I got close enough. <laughs> but it was possible to do that. But um, the adults, the um, passengers and, and haggards, you couldn't. Haggards were instantly wild. You could get them back by um, by putting a narcotic in, in a, a kill they'd made. Uh, but it was a bit of a dangerous process um, because the dosage rate... To make immobilize the bird um, safely was um, uh, quite close. We discovered doing this later in Sweden to the level at which liver damage could occur. So it was it w- was a dodgy technique, uh, and um, we then went over to things like putting noose, noose carpets down and so on. But um, so I went through my doctoral thesis looking first uh, at at arranged flights at pigeons and and then uh, um, at. Uh, wild um, or semi-wild hawks, how they were hunting and what they were doing, what their behavior was like and so on, and then went on postdoc to look at the same thing in, in Sweden. So I probably, um, I was probably training goshawks until uh, about 1980. And then I had a break, and then I, uh, when I was during very busy with my research career and traveling quite a lot, uh, and then I got another bird about 1990 and flew that until uh, 1994-5. M- must have been just into 95, uh, actually, the end of that winter. Uh, and, um, and that I then had a... Uh, a buzzard that we thought was crossed had crossed naturally with redtail, but probably had hadn't um, briefly after that. But didn't manage to get it to catch anything. You can get them to catch things, but it's quite difficult to do so. Uh, uh, a common buzzard is not is a far cry from a redtail in terms of of hunting ability, uh, and so that was must have been late late nineties. And since when I haven't had a a bird myself, but I've been out with plenty of people. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm sure that over the years of you not being able to to have a bird yourself, you've kind of at times probably have felt like you needed to scratch the itch occasionally, you know, get your <laughs> yes. get your occasional fix, you know. If you've flown a bird really well, you don't want to fly it half-heartedly uh, again. And during my thesis and uh, during my um, early career, I was able to fly hawks three times a week at least. Uh, you've got a goshawk or any any bird really to keep it really fit so that you're not um, taking it below an ideal weight in order to keep it um, um um, responsive, um, you've got to keep it really fit, uh, and and you've got a flight, 
enough to to do that, and I wasn't able to do that anymore. Also, I I mean, I'd flown ten or so goshawks, and uh, and uh, I'd flown them at pretty much everything that was good to fly them at. Um, I hadn't discovered squirrels that <laughs> that came in the nineties, uh, and that's what I'd like to 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 go back to doing because that was the most fun of all. <laughs> Well, and and before we talk about squirrels a little bit, um, you know, just kind of talk about some of the experiences that you had, you know, kind of trying to learn the best way to to hunt a goshawk on some of the original quarry that you that you tried. I mean, what was the, you know, since you, it, it, I know you said you you really hadn't had much in the ways of mentorship, and I mean, when you started flying goshawks, did you by that point? Had you found really anybody that could kind of help guide you at all, or did were you still kind of trying to learn a little bit by just experience? I was still learning pretty much by myself. Myself, I I took uh, about fifteen quarry with the red tail and then lost it in the spring. It uh, one day it was in quite high condition and it and it just went up and up and up out of sight, <laughs> uh, and. Uh, um, so so I got a goshawk after that. Um, I did go to Germany, um, uh, and I stayed. I, I hitchhiked around Germany with a goshawk. I used to hitchhike even to the German meetings. Quite fun, fun to do that with a with a hawk on the fist. You take a newspaper as well that you put down the well of the car so that uh, it could relieve itself without um, um, abusing the the uh, uh, hospitality of the driver. But. Um, uh, I don't know that I don't remember being uh, taught. I expect I had advice along the way. I, I met lots of people who were good flying hawks. Jack Mavrigodato was uh, was another person at that stage. Um, I used to go out a bit with Gordon Jolly, who was uh, who I, with whom I was joint secretary of the British Falconers Club for a while. Um, but most of it was self taught. Um, and but you come to realize fairly soon that that you need to find uh, the species that you want to enter a hawk to um, in an inconvenienced state. In other words, either some uh, where the young ones are, or or where they're away from cover, or whatever. You 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 learn that fairly quickly. The wood pigeons were were quite challenging to get the bird to fly. At. People don't normally fly goshawks at wood pigeons, um, although they the, they take masses of wood pigeons in the wild so to get them to fly it at wood pigeons was a little challenging um it took more than one season the first season i didn't really uh, get the bird in fact the bird refused to take slips at wood pigeon flocks uh, during that first season and it was only in the second season that i realized that i needed to uh, find places where the uh, young were not long out of the nest uh, and then particularly find them around the edges of brassica crops which was not an ideal food for them and 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 if they were uh, they used to get wood, weak wood pigeons there which were easy to catch then having uh, got a hawk well into to those, it would take long, long slips at them. Uh, and, and that was how I was able to, to arrange uh, flights at them. I think we arranged about 100 flights during the course of, of the season, uh, in which of which something, something over 30 resulted in kills. So um, that was a difficult species to enter to, much more difficult than partridges, pheasants, rabbits, and moorhens were just 
too embarrassing, I, 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 embarrassingly easy to catch and and one sort of after a time didn't really want to f fly at them. <laughs> well, I mean, I have to go back a little bit here real quick. I mean, just kind of, it's kind of hard to just briefly touch over something like, you know, like hitchhiking with a goshawk too. I have to ask you, I mean, I mean, <laughs> were you, I'm assuming you were probably hooding these birds, right? Like this bird that you had with you. Do you know, I can't remember whether I always hooded them. I did hood goshawks eventually, but it, uh, uh, using the very light um, Indian hoods. Um, but um, I don't know that I did, you know. I think they were just very well manned because <laughs> I, I used to virtually live with the things. Um, and I, one occasion when I trained two males because I wanted to have one and a spare when I was doing the actual flight arranging, you know, it, it was a lot of work to keep two, two goshawks, uh, flying fit, uh, at the time, not least because I virtually lived with them. Um, and so they were pretty, pretty tame. And I think, I don't know that I, I, I travel with a hood or not. I can't remember. Sadly, no photographs of, of, of that. I, I have one or two photographs of that age indicating that my hair was a lot longer than, than now. But um, I don't really remember. Um, there are a few photos, but not of me um, carrying goss or Well, only when I was hunting with them, and then they weren't hooded. So I never, never hooded the, with them for hunting. Um, I think, you know, I had, I made a travel, one of the early traveling boxes too, but I don't think I, I tended not to hood gosses. They, they not take to it brilliantly well. They tend to droop their heads and, and so on. Yeah. Well, I just, like I said, I can only imagine what some people's reactions were. I mean, how many, on average, how many rides did you have to? <laughs> I, just, I, I don't know. So it's funny. I, I used to, I used to go with a, a Union Jack because in those days, uh, Brits, this was, we're talking about the uh, late sixties, early seventies. Uh, the Brits had, had still not made themselves unpopular again in Europe. They were considered pretty popular. So I used to take a, 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 a small suitcase case with the Union Jack over at Nagoshawks. That's a bit, <laughs> seems a bit silly. Um, but when you got close to the uh, um, falconry meetings in Germany, you used to get people um, who, who were falconers who picked you up. And I remember meeting one of them um, two or three years ago saying, do you remember we picked you up for, before the 73 meeting? <laughs> Boy, that's got to be the, that's, that had to have been random. Just, geez. Well, that's, that's that's so funny you know and it just like once again I, I, i've had this conversation with many people and you know one of the things that is another common denominator in falconry is like is if there's a will there's a way and if you really want <laughs> to make something happen and uh you know you you generally will figure out a way to do it and mm -hmm. it sounds like you uh you were no exception in, <laughs> in a lot of those in a lot of those regards but no well i mean that's that's awesome i that's i can't honestly say that i had heard any hitchhiking in stories with birds and falconry yet but i'm sure that it was it's probably happened somewhere else and at some other time but yeah. um but i mean so when 
as you mentioned earlier, I mean, we had kind of talked in and around, um, you know, some of the activities over the weekend, but, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, that, um, you discovered, you know, squirrels and, you know, you, you mentioned earlier that you would like to pursue that more seriously again sometime, you know, circumstances and, and life, you know, permitting, but how did you discover that this was something that you liked doing and, you know, was, was really fun? Was it a, was it kind of like an accidental, um, you know, catch where your bird would just started pursuing them one day and you just kind of stumbled on to squirrel hawking or? Yes, I think I stumbled onto it. Um, it was a bird that we'd been using in research. We'd been, um, it had been radio tracked, uh, released and radio tracked, uh, to look at settling behavior because we'd got a lot of data masses in Sweden. We'd radio tagged some 350 goshawks there, uh, in, in the nest and caught adults. But, um, what we had was a lot of data on dispersal but not nearly so much on, on settling behavior. Uh, and we wanted to, to look at that a bit. Uh, and there was an interest in filming um, the bird too, because it was a bird that had been manned, but not entered. Uh, and so we had taken it to the stage when the feathers are hard. And in the wild, the birds normally disperse in the two to three weeks after that point. They start ranging much further from the nest once the feathers are hard. Uh, and, and so we then um, put this bird out well fed um, into the wild with some with some food and and, and hacked it uh, on a fairly not so not such a soft hack and and it managed absolutely fine because it found a pheasant pen and started helping itself had to catch it in again uh, used a spring net to do that uh, which is a much better way of, of, of getting the birds which I'd learned in Sweden by that time and um, that bird was not very keen on flying pheasants afterwards, surprisingly, because it, although it had taken an awful lot in a short time, uh, it, it seemed not very keen on them. But it was interested in squirrels. Uh, and um, after we'd had, had the first one, and I'd learned um, I maybe the first couple, probably the first one it took on the ground, I don't really remember. Um, but... Um, after that, uh, it started flying at them in the canopy, and I realized very quickly that the squirrel's um, escape route was down the tree, usually in a spiral, dodging around the trunk, mm-hmm. uh, and that if you could push the squirrel back up into the tree, and the goshawk learned, as she did fairly quickly, that the name of the game was to stay up in the canopy, then eventually it would break through the, the small branches. Uh, and so it was a, a great participatory sport. You had to get there and, and be engaged and help and prevent the squirrel getting away in the undergrowth on the ground. So there's a great fun, fun, uh, um, real uh, cooperation between hawk and falconer, which is what makes the most fun, I think, in in falconry. Um, and I'd like to to do that again because there's some ideas that we have about uh, possibly getting birds from from game farms and doing exactly what I did with this bird. She became really keen on squirrels, uh, and she wasn't very keen on pheasants. And I I wondering whether you, we could use get birds that are trapped at game farms and 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 to train them to to take squirrels and and let them go again. Also possibly using. Um, 
um, aversive chemicals, um, of which there are some to deter them from eating pheasants, to make, make them really uh, unkeen on pheasant. Uh, unkeen on, it would be an interesting thing to, for falconers to do as another contribution to conservation, if you like. <laughs> but um, whether we'll get round to that, I don't know, because the networking is, is much too important uh, for now. And we because it is building the links between IUCN, the World Conservation uh, Organization, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature, and IAF. And that's very important for IAF. And it's bringing together scientists and falconers as practitioners, particularly young falconers, because the youth side of IAF is so well organized. Uh, and to organize networking from global to local level in this way is something which no other conservation groups have tried. They probably will copy us and, and follow it. But at the moment, we have the lead with this. Uh, and that has that's of, of great importance for our reputation in the future, if only for showing that we continue to innovate. Uh, and But it, it gives us a responsibility. It's also great fun for the young falconers and brings them in contact with governments and all sorts of things, which is practically good for the future falconers. So I am not allowing myself another goes until we've got this off the ground. <laughs> well, and just to clarify, too, um, I know we I had asked you about this the other day as well, but um, it is mainly gray squirrels that you that you had over there, right? That that's right. Where 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 I am, I'm hunting gray squirrels. You would not, uh, you could not hunt red squirrels. Uh, red squirrels are protected, and you'd need a license if you wanted to hunt them. But uh, I wouldn't want to hunt them anyway. So, um, uh, having worked research on both species, um, the grays are uh, are more of a challenge than red squirrels anyway. <laughs> because <laughs> they're bigger and, uh, and more boisterous and you need a bird that can uh, handle them properly. Well, great. Yeah, I, I well, I mean, for what it's worth, I hope that you can wrap up whatever duties you feel like you need to to wrap up so you can go back to en enjoying squirrel hawking again, you know, someday in the near future. It's, uh, like I said, it's something that I've come to really enjoy myself. So, I mean, I, I, I get it, you know, for sure. But, um, well, I, I think this would be a good time to go ahead and get, um, you know, at least one or, you know, two memorable stories, if you can. Like, what, what, are, what are a couple of the more or just one in particular, whatever comes to mind, um, you know, of your, of your favorite hawking stories or, you know, I mean, what's, what sticks out in your mind as a, as a memorable experience that you, that you've had in the field with some of the birds that you've flown. Well, I would not want to claim it for my own birds. I think the most memorable flight I ever saw was at um, um, Spoing Plover in, in, uh, in Argentina uh, at the, um, um, international um, falconry meet there. Um, IF had a meeting there and we went out into the field uh, and um, uh, and uh, and I believe, I think it was an Aplomado falcon. Uh, it may not have been, I cannot remember precisely, but, uh, but that flight went on and on forever. Um, and the plovers are of course very agile and can dodge uh, a, a stooping falcon. Uh, and that bird dodged for a very long time uh, until it was tired. It was almost like playing a fish. 
um, because when it was tarred enough, the falcon brought it down about 15 meters in front of the falconer, who was able to get there quickly, which is quite important because those birds, the spurs on those birds can do some damage. Uh, and uh, that uh, that flight I will never forget. <laughs> and is there any particular, you know, flight that of uh, birds that you know you you have flown that you know? I guess I'm assuming that it was probably you know maybe one of the the early birds that you flew that, that probably you know made the most impact on you. But uh, I mean, what's what's one of the more, more memorable stories for one of the birds that that you flew? The the most spectacular flight I can remember um, was when we had because we were working on wood pigeons and we needed marked wood pigeons as well. We'd been catching wood pigeons um, by putting um, bait down with alpha chlorous and a babitrate in it um, on the grain, and uh, the pigeons would eat this, and 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 then they would go into a a, 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 a drugged state, and you could go and pick them up. And we'd caught a lot of pigeons like this and, and tagged them. And the particular field where, where I was doing this, um, we thought we'd sort of turned the remaining grain over into the ground uh, so that it was not accessible to, to any birds. Um, but I came up to it with a, hawk on, with a gauze on the fist and I noticed there were some pigeons there. And I was, since I was quite close and the bird was taking slips, um, I, 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 I flew um, the pigeons. One of them um, was a bit slower uh, than the others. And it was clear to me that it must have got a little of that grain, but it went up and up and up. But the hawk knew that it was not quite right. Uh, <laughs> and of course, they would give up quite quickly with a wood pigeon because the flight speed of a wood pigeon uh, is several miles an hour faster than a flat out goshawk. So if they, when, once they attack them, if uh, uh, sitting on the ground eating, uh, eating or, or on the brassicas, um, they would give up. They wouldn't bother to follow through on it. But this time the hawk realized this pigeon and they went up and up and up. And then uh, pigeons have a lot of loose feathers and there was a huge puff of white feathers as the goshawk grabbed it and, <laughs> uh, and then parachuted down to the ground. And, uh, and I, I thought, my word, that is not the sort of flight you could deliberately arrange. It would be uh, unethical to do so, but as an accident, uh, that was an amazing flight. That's awesome. Well, like I said, I, I think that, um, you know, that's probably, you know, a pretty good note to, you know, come close to ending on here. But I would like to do like I have been doing for a while now with um, with a lot of our guests. And and I'd like to ask you, you know, what what piece of advice or what sentiment would you like to leave to, you know, current and even prospective falconers? And, um, you know, what do you think is, is an important piece of advice for, for people that are either wanting to get into the sport or are currently in the sport? 
Well, Falcon is a patient, usually, anyway, because it's difficult. But patience is the, is the most important thing. And the reason I say this is because it's a bit of advice that I've frequently given to falconers, uh, not so much for training their birds, uh, but for legalizing uh, falconry in other countries, um, because uh, you need to wait until you have established your conservation credentials in each country before you can really ask the conservation authorities to consider making you illegal. Too many places people have been in too much of a hurry, uh, sometimes wanting to breed and sell birds for some reason or other things. And my advice again, has again and again been, uh, been patience and uh, unfortunately that advice isn't always taken uh, and then that's a generational wait usually once someone has got upset. So in terms of the politics as well as in the immediate training of the birds, you need a lot of patience. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, I mean, that's definitely something that along with a lot of the other, you know, piece of advice that we've collected, it's, it's, definitely something that it, it can't be said enough. So like I said, I, I appreciate you, you know, being willing to, to do this and, um, you know, to, you know, kind of share some of your stories and experiences. And I mean, just out of curiosity, you know, for any of the younger generation now, who's thinking about wanting to get more involved in a lot of the things that you have, you know, the type of, um, you know, the political side or just the uh, the conservation side of things. And, you know, they don't really know where to to begin, you know, to get into that. I mean, what would be your advice to them on like the best method to kind of maybe get involved in some of these things? We really need them. Get in touch. Get in touch with IAF. Uh, uh, and uh, Julian Muller is the person to to get in touch with. He speaks three languages: Spanish, English, and uh, and German. Uh, and um, get in touch with uh, with IAF. There are lots of young falconers there. They're all involved in the networking. If we don't get on with the networking, which is about restoring uh, habitats, restoring stace, prey species, uh, uh, and and restoring biodiversity in general, then there won't be anything for us to fly at in the long run, uh, and the numbers of wild birds of prey will will diminish too. So uh, if you don't want to be uh, wind up flying a robotic prey, uh, possibly eventually with robotic falcons, uh, do get in touch with IAF and, and help with the networking and the translation and the and the outreach to, to farmers and, and people to help them uh, improve their uh, their um, the ecosystems which they manage so that we can keep hawking into the future. We want to build up the numbers of prey, not to see that decline anymore. Perfect. Well, thank you for sharing that as well. And, um, you know, unless you can think of anything else that would be noteworthy to give to a, a worldwide platform here before you're ready to call this good, um, you know, I mean, I, uh, I, like I, guess, like I said, thank you again for, you know, joining us and, um, you know, for taking the time. It's not like we're missing out on a whole lot today, I guess, <laughs> but, um, you know, thanks for helping me make the most of, um, you know, saying productive, I guess, during a, a another monsoony day here. And, um, you know, like I said, thanks. Thanks again. It's been great meeting you over the last few days. Thanks very much for leading me so nicely through the interview. <laughs> <laughs> no problem, Robert. Well, I appreciate you. <laughs>